This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 55. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 55 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. Welcome. Happy New Year to all of you. Got an exciting guest on today, good friend of mine, Ben Bernstein. Uh, I know Ben through my work with him over at KFOG. Ben has done a lot of work over at Disney and Microsoft in terms of the the video game realm. And uh, he's got a kind of a breadth of experience of corporate audio as well as band audio uh, or making records, I I guess you could say. So uh, there it is. Yeah, Ben Bernstein coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 55, 55 episodes we're on. How about that? Crazy. And it's 2016. So uh, got my clipboard here. Yes, sir. What did I want to tell you about? You know, it's 2016, so... God, I tell you, there's there's a lot of a lot of possibilities for you at the beginning of a new year. And of course, I'm looking around my room and I'm realizing I have a lot of possibility here. I have a lot of like, a lot of cleanup to do, some painting and some uh, general uh, purging that I need to do. Purging is really, I think, um, it's an important thing to do because it really just helps clean the slate. It really focuses the mind, and I don't know, it's important to me. And I started doing it some time ago. And here's a couple ideas for you. Just I'll throw this out there. And you, if you dig them, great. If not, no big deal. I use a thing on Android called a mobile doc scanner. Uh, you can find it probably in the Google Play Store. And the app essentially is, it gives you the ability to take a picture of a document, blow it up. It's almost like an old old school kind of like if you if you see in the movies, you know, like the the CIA guys, you know, taking the the spy shots of the documents and you know in somebody's embassy or something. It's kind of like that. It makes perfectly clear pictures. And a few years ago, when my wife and kids went out of town uh, over the summer, they they were going over to Michigan, and I stayed home and worked and and purged. And what I did was is I uh, spent that time taking pictures of all these documents through the mobile doc scanner, converting them into PDFs, which is a breeze, and then just loading those up into Dropbox or uh, Google Drive. And I went through, I'm going to say thousands, I'll go out on a limb and I'll say thousands of documents, purged all that, which was really great. And then was able to get rid of those documents and just kind of moving my world into a more digital centric world where I don't have all this clutter. I don't have all this junk mail cluttering my world. I don't have all these documents piling up. But if I need access to those documents, I can get those. And one case came up where I was in a car accident, had bought new tires right shortly before the accident, and I was on the phone with the insurance people. And I said, yeah, it's a shame I can't uh, you know, get the money out of the tires that I put on that car because the car was totaled. And they said, oh, well, if you have a receipt at the at the ready, we can uh, add money to the final payout check for that. And it just so happened I did. And in the way I had it set up, I think I had it set up in Evernote at the time. I was taking pictures with the mobile doc scanner, moving it to Evernote. And then I was able to quickly search uh, uh, by the word tire or the date, I believe, and immediately came up the PDF. Didn't have to go digging through a box or any files or any of that. It was, it was quite handy. So that's that's one of my tips. Another tip, you know, I, I don't know about you all, but I'm really not the brightest person when it comes to investing. 
in fact, I just don't know much about investing at all. And I'm not going to claim to be an investment strategist by any stretch. But if you haven't started saving for any kind of future, any retirement, and I know many of you, including myself, I say, well, I'm never going to retire. I mean, if, if people continue to pay me to do audio, why would I retire? But you do want to plan for a time when you're not going to be able to, you know, make it to the studio or go out on the film set or whatever. You want to make sure that you're covered. And I've always been confused by all these brokerage services that are out there. So um, I did come across one and I, and I came across it through uh, Mr. Money Mustache, which is a blog that I tend to follow. And it's on the uh, WCA Recommends page. In that, he talks about Mr. Money Mustache. He talks about uh, a company called Betterment. And basically, it's a a robo, robotic, I guess you call it robo-investing. There's not really a lot of humans involved in the process, so the fees are low. Um, The app is super slick and very easy to understand, so you know how much you're investing, what what the story is. It, it, I'm, not, I'm not really doing it justice. I'm not selling it to you by any stretch. And I just want to be clear, I'm not getting any money from recommending it. It's just something I've discovered. I'm using it. Uh, I called my sister up in New Mexico and said, hey, you know what? You should check this out. I really think this is, uh, this is a really great way to invest. And it, uh, it basically says, you know, in you know, X amount of years, you're going to retire. This is what you've invested. This is what you've gained or what you've lost. And I guess, you know, everybody always talks about, oh, I invest in Vanguard funds, which I guess in the world of investing, that's kind of a safe bet is what I'm to understand. I don't really 100% know for fact that that's true, but this is a fancy front end for Vanguard funds. So check it out. Go to betterment.com. Have a look at it. See what you think. You can invest in as little as five, 10 bucks. You know, you don't have to have like $5,000 to get in the door, which that really made it attractive for me. So. That's uh, that's kind of my New Year's resolutions, uh, purging and, and cleaning, which I always do, and also just investing in the future and, you know, creating a safety net so when, you know, there is no audio work around in the future for me, I'll have a retirement savings I can lean on. So that's that. That's... Um, it's kind of the New Year's resolution ideas. Obviously, there's audio resolution ideas, uh, audio New Year's resolution ideas. You know, maybe it's saving for a piece of gear or maybe it's uh, changing your setup. Those are important too, but also you want to make sure that your foundation is solid so that in your personal life so that you can do audio and you're not distracted by, you know, crazy bullshit that comes up in your life. So that's that. Yeah, got my coffee ready to bring Ben Bernstein's interview to you here. So uh, why don't we get going on that right here, right now? Happy New Year 2016. Ben Bernstein on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Happy almost New Year. Welcome to the podcast and now with the possibility of video involved. So it's New Year's Eve. What are you doing tonight? I think I'm playing doing karaoke with a bunch of kids is that what you're doing that's what i'm doing oh. i think we've got uptown funk shake it off queued up mm-hmm. that should probably get us through the oh. night and i have the frozen soundtrack karaoke in case i need backup <laughs> is that still cool that's totally cool All right. yeah i think we're gonna be uh i'll probably be playing star wars battlefront with my boys nice yeah that's um that's kind of a that's a fun thing to do. Not very much fun for my wife. Are we talking Wii here? Or oh, we're talking Xbox. Nice. Yeah. So anyhow. Cool. 
so we're here in your studio in uh, Rockridge, uh, which is a uh, part of Oakland, California. Do you have a name for the studio? This is the Petting Zoo. The Petting. This is the Petting. The zoo. original Petting Zoo. Okay. Located in your backyard. Actually, technically, it's located in your front yard. Yeah. The way things are arranged with this house. Obviously, you do some mixing here and editing. Do you do a lot of overdubs or a lot of actual tracking? I do do a lot of overdubs, and I have done um, a lot of tracking, which is pretty interesting considering we're about 200 feet from the BART tracks and the highway. That's right. The BART train runs right right, right here. here. We may hear it during this podcast. Oh, that, that'd be great. But, you know, you can get around it. it. You basically, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes it's coming. But I've never had anybody complain or see it as an obstacle. So it's been, it's been great. Hmm. You just work around it. You work around it or, you know, even occasionally someone would be like, that's cool. It, it, like, it went by right when I ended. It was kind of like poetic or something. Huh. And when all else fails, there's isotope. <laughs> Here's the BART setting for isotope. Exactly. Anyhow, so um, how did you get started in in recording? I know that, you know, you're a bass player, so that probably has some part in it. Did that, what came first, bass playing or recording? That's the chicken and the egg, isn't it? It is. Um, it's What's the gateway drug? Yeah, bass is de- definitely a gateway drug to becoming a music producer. Okay. Um, so I, I started with that, and I think... Probably formally, I went to college to study music and bass, Mm -hmm. but ended up majoring in communications with a focus on audio engineering. Hmm. So the music kind of led me to the recording, but then I went back to being a performer and then, you know, back to recording, kind of back and forth. And then after I spent time on the road and came off the road, I said, you know, there's got to be a better way to make a living through music without having to be gone all the time and, you know, sleeping in a white van with a bunch of other dudes. So that's when I decided to really, you know, bone up on my technology and recording and get modern. And that was about seven, eight years ago when I said, okay, career path is going to be more about being in the studio than chasing gigs. Huh. It seems like when I met you, that was much longer ago, but I guess. I met you in mid 2007. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah, we, and we met because you were going to PureMind, and PureMind came through to use Broken Radio with one of your professors there uh, whose name was... Will Storkson. Yeah. You guys came through, and that's when, when we met. And uh, I don't know. I, I think we just we hit it off. I think I, I immediately kind of identified you as one of the students in the class that was kind of beyond everybody else. And there's always one or two of those in every audio class. Right. You were that guy. And I knew that we'd be doing stuff in the future together. And that, that proved to be 100% correct. So, so after Pyramine, what did, where, did, where did you end up going? Because I kind of lost track of you for a bit. Yeah, you know, after that, I actually, I just started producing people in here. And I also was using the Pyramine Studios from time to time. Um, I had a little bit of uh, an inside thing there because I was doing voiceover recording gigs for them. And then I, a couple times, I think I did a couple tracking sessions in one of their labs. And then it just became a do-it-yourself kind of thing. You know, you just start off, you find you find singer-songwriters, you find bands who want to record and want a producer. And, you know, they're willing to take care of you and your time. And you just start making it up. Yeah, kind of figuring it out, making mistakes. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. I mean, mistakes are just, or mis- you know, you know, what does Miles Davis say? His greatest moments were his greatest mistakes. Just discovering things. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I kind of, I feel like I kind of missed the boat on the traditional like apprentice 
standard thing, you know, with studios interning, because I felt like by the time I got into it, like the the studio system had just crumbled. Yeah. I mean, even like Mm -hmm. volunteering, like make coffee and sweep a floor would be like hard to find, you know? So I just was like, all right, well, I'm just going to find people who want to do this and I'm just going to keep doing it and kept doing it and kept doing you know, whatever recording jobs on the side I, I could get, you know, I did Pyramine for years, you know, other things come and go, but you know, eventually you're just always kind of wearing that engineer, that producer hat and you're, you're just keep doing it. And then we did, uh, we did a run together at KFOG. And in fact, I'm reminded because there's a death cab for cutie and airborne toxic event poster up here. Uh, that reminds me that of that time period uh, and those, you know, that was, that was such a great way for both of us to, get a lot of high profile acts under our belt because we were actively recording and mixing those projects. The death cap for cutie thing was kind of a unique situation because you ended up going out with Piper Payne right. and recording it on site and then bringing the tracks back. You mixed the airborne toxic event and I did the death cap for cutie part, but gigs like that seem like that was a magical kind of gig and that that was, I don't know, those gigs don't seem to come up all that often. No, they don't. I mean, it was great because like you're saying, you were you were working with all these like signed acts and like sometimes just downright, you know, rock stars. I remember being in there like Lindsey Buckingham came in and I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> he's a god. <laughs> like, look at his leather coat, you know. But they were great. I mean, they were great on multiple levels but yes i mean being in san francisco it's very rare to be involved in a situation where you're working with really established acts who are coming in you know from a different angle because we're like the secondary market and there's tons of talent but if you were in la new york or nashville you might actually be hanging out at a session and wow you know when the blank just walked in to do overdubs, that yeah. was really, you know, well, I met them and they liked the way I made coffee. And now I'm, editing, <laughs> now I'm running the band <laughs> now, or now I'm editing tracks for them. They're whatever. But the cool thing about the KFOG thing, I think, you know, f- just for growth was you know, you're coming in there, you're setting up, you do a live mix, you maybe punch in a few things, but then it goes on air. So to me, it was so old school about like, we're just going to record a band. We're, we're going to do a really good mix on the spot. And then it's just going to get, it's going to get hurt. It's going to get played. There's not going to be a month of vetting it and overdubbing it and tweaking it and polishing. It. It's like, this is how they used to do things. Mm-hmm. Band would come in, they would record good take. All right. Send it to the guy, you know, the mastering guy, who's just going to make sure the levels are okay. And then it's going on a disc. That was such a convoluted setup there though, because you were essentially, you were running an old, there's the BART. You were running an old Pro Tools rig, a, ver- a version 7172 rig that was sitting in a G5, like off to the side, but you were actually controlling that, if you remember, through an iMac through remote desktop. Yeah. You remember that part? It was kind of weird. I just remember um, Chuck Smith, who who was kind of hiring us to do it indirectly. Chuck, who's the, who's the voiceover of the beginning of the show. Right, exactly. Hey, Chuck, he was like, don't ever press save while you're recording, because it would it could totally make the system glitch and stop because it was it was kind of jury rigged. It totally was. And, you know, I think, I mean, I definitely had one accident, I think. Yeah. That, like, the recording ended. They did the show in front of an audience at the, at the station. And then that was it. I hit stop. And then it was, like, gone. Like, it wasn't there. And I was looking at it like what on earth just happened? What is yeah. happening right now? There's no audio. Oh my God. So I had to run out and tell Dennis, the program manager, we don't have anything. 
Right. Actually, we may have had. That's yeah. not entirely true. Were you running the two track? We were running the two track backup. Right. But I think we ended up. We may have ended up having to use the two track backup. But we had some disaster where we had to have somebody, you know, uh, redo the the takes. Yeah. And they were they were totally up for it. Yeah, that's the cool thing. I mean, I happened to me once too, where something fizzled out mid take, and it was actually it was like one of those deals where you're like, oh god, that was a really that was happening. That was a good take. Yeah. And you're just like, <clears throat> you kind of hang your head. And the guy's like, all right, well, I'll do another one. And then he didn't like that take. And he's like, I'm going to do a third take. And then he ended up being really happy with the third take. So it was all good at the end of the day. But I, I think actually, you know, when you're in the hot seat and you're recording, like in the studio or whatever, it's like when that moment's happening and it's like you, when something does go down, and you're like, oh, you know, it is kind of a sinking feeling. You know, if you're like, oh my God, that was like, that was a moment, but most, you know, artists, you know, they're gracious. You, they'll get, they'll get back to it. They do. You just, you just try not to get in the way. And in those situations where you had, you know, with all due respect to everybody involved, when you have people who are not aware of the details of the situation of the pro tools rig, mm-hmm. um, when you have to tell them something has gone wrong, they don't know anything else, but you know, they don't know to, Oh, this goofed up or, this piece of gear didn't work as it as we expected it to work. They just look at you and go, "You goofed it up, man." That could, yeah, that could be a way they look at it. But you know, hopefully they're gracious and they're like, "All right, something happened. We'll just do it again." Yeah, yeah. So since then, um, there was there was a change of the guard, and I kind of you managed to kind of hold on to a few gigs there. I I was a little more, uh, let's just say, I probably could categorize my attitude towards the whole thing as belligerent <laughs> because you know basically dean that guy dean came in and uh i didn't want to do any part of the i wanted to do the recording and the mixing that's right. what i enjoyed doing and that's what i was doing with chuck as the head but as soon as chuck got let go i was like yeah i can't do that i don't really want to be doing the other stuff so sorry right and yeah. that's you know i kind of cut myself out of the the situation but you managed to hang on to it because you kind of you were like yeah i'll i'll do both i'll do i'll do all of it yeah i mean that was the thing is i knew you know once dean came in he was going to be doing the recording and the mixing and he's like can you do front of house i was like sure i mean i figured like whatever it's a good gig maybe he'll go on vacation and i did that for a while and then their budget got cut and they, they even i think i ended up training some intern to like do live sound but it, it that's you know that's one of the things you kind of like get used to when you're an engineer and you're freelancing, things come and go. And I mean, bands come and go, projects come and go. And like, if you get attached to any situation, then it makes it difficult. But if you realize that, you know, it's like, this could last six months, it could last six years, but eventually I'm going to have to, or I'm just going to have to find new situations, you know? So then you always come back to like, well, what's constant here? Well, it's me, you know? So if I'm I'm if I'm calling myself a producer an engineer, how do I keep business coming to me? So if it's a contract with a radio station, great. If it's working for whoever else, that's great. But you know what becomes central is that you know that just it it you know it's kind of like the world revolves around you in a sense without being <laughs> pretentious. But really, you you know you are the business. Yeah. In those in those you know situations, like they're great, but you know they're not going to last. Um. So. After KFOG ended for, not, I don't want to say ended, after it kind of cur- got curtailed for you, um, sure. you've been doing some, you continue to do records and, and bands because you're involved over at Mission Recorders with Sebastian mm-hmm. Richard, who was just on the show. Um, 
so you do that, but I know you're doing some uh, corporate audio stuff as well. Yeah, I've had a couple corporate audio gigs. Um, I worked at Disney Interactive for the better part of a year. Um, what did that involve? Sound design for video games. How did you get that gig? I had some resumes on some websites just because um, I cast my net wide. And I got an email from some recruiter saying, hey, Disney is looking for an audio producer. Are you interested? I said, well, yeah. So then I uh, waited. A week went by. They're like, they want to interview you. Okay, great. So I go down. I interview. And I interview with uh, Peter Thomas. and uh, Drummer? Drummer Peter Thomas. Who was at who I know through Pyramid. Yeah, through, yeah, he's good friends with, uh, with Matt. Yeah, Matt Donner. Donner yeah. Um, so I interviewed with Peter and this guy, Clay Barlow, who were, they were audio producers there. And then I met, I met the manager, this guy, Nick Gallant, who walks in and he's like, got the wrong resume. And he was wearing his, you know, locals flip-flops. And I was just like, Hey, nice flip-flops. He's like, Oh, like, do you surf? And I pretended that I did. And then he kind of threw the resume aside and then he asked me a few questions. He asked me what my favorite kind of beer was. And I answered correctly. I said, I liked black IPAs. And then like a week later, they're calling me like he wanted to hire me. I had no video game. I had minimal video game experience. Yeah, you know, I had recorded some voiceover, but he, he just, I mean, you know, in, in a deal like that, it's kind of like, who do you want to like be around? Everyone's got the skills, man. But they don't, you know? they don't really say that. You know, they put mm-hmm. out all these, on these websites or job listings for gigs like that. It's always like, you know, must have, you know, bachelor's degree and have shipped, you know, been a part of working on three AAA video game titles. And there's all these, like, I realize that there's a filtering process. It's a filter. And I mean, in the bigger companies, they use robots. You know, I mean, they use bots to like search through. So it's like, if you read, you read that description and it's like, okay, I got to put the word sound design there. I got to put the word video game in there and I got to write ship titles. So it's like, it'll pick up keywords. It'll be, it'll throw you into the yes pile. And then, okay, there's a hundred of you guys. I mean, I think there were like, it might've been like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have applied to that one job. It's crazy, yeah. you know? So yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, five guys could have the same exact experience. So what's it come down to? You know, it, it comes down to, you know, the hang. It comes, it comes down to partly the hang, you know? So I did that. And then, um, you know, it lasted a good run. I worked on a, I worked on a great Star Wars game. I got, I got the first day I got handed a gigabyte of like Ben Burt legacy Star Wars sound effects. Like here, play with these, you know, and I crack open the lightsaber file. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> that's a real light. Wow. That's the sound that's of the really, lightsaber. It's really awesome. Wow. So I actually learned a lot from that process. You know, there's a great book out there. That's like the sound effects of Star Wars. And it can, you can add on this little thing that you, type in the uh, example number and it plays you, you know, a compressed version of the legacy sound effects. So it's like the actual lightsaber, you type in whatever number and it plays you it and it tells you, okay, well, this is what Ben Burt did. He had a, a projector with a ground hum and then he amplified that through distortion and he stood there with a microphone and watched the lightsaber battle and swung it back and forth to get the Doppler effect. You know, wow, wow. That's how he did it. He just invented all this stuff. And you like, you're like, wow, that's really cool. So that was that a contract gig or was that a, like a as a contract gig? Okay, yeah. And did you have any sense that you might be able to stay on? I was hopeful, and, you know, in the beginning, but you know, two months in, major layoffs. Um, Disney restructured their entire interactive um, division, and I pretty much knew I was not going to get hired at that time. I did get a contract extension um, so that I could finish working on the Guardians of the Galaxy game, which was super fun. 
But, you know, the writing was kind of on the wall. I mean, I wa- it was like one of those situations where you're just watching people drop like flies, hmm. like every few weeks. And you're just like, whoa. Interesting. Yeah. Talking about impermanence, you know, it's like even when you have a job, benefits and everything, like that could last two months. And now you got, you came off that gig didn't, and you wound up doing, didn't you end up doing some stuff for Microsoft? I'm currently a part-time contractor with Microsoft. Okay. And I assume that, you know, it's a similar thing. It's, you know, you go in and, or do, actually, uh, didn't you mention you do a lot of work from here? I do. That's a great situation because it's in Sunnyvale, which is a three hour round trip, skip and a jump. And that's if there's no traffic? That's with, that's average traffic. I made it in 45 minutes the other day though, because it's, you know, the 45 holidays. minutes one way. One way. On the right. way home, it was, you know, dog eat dog traffic. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, I have, I have a, a great situation. I have a great manager. I go in there one day a week. I bring the work home. I'm able to, you know, VPN in, you know, access the servers and everything. So it's it's pretty cool for now. So when you do you're doing these contract gigs, um, do you, you continue to do records when you have time, or how how do you make that work? Well, you know, I kind of learned. I made I made a little miscalculation. I won't say a mistake. I made, I miscalculated when I started with Disney. I was real hopeful that it would turn into a long term employment situation. And it was full time, and I just kind of ducked out of doing um, major recording projects. I did some, you know, I worked with some people who were longtime clients or friends, and I would go in on the weekends occasionally, but I really didn't take on any, you know, major work. And so I kind of disappeared for about nine months. And then what happened after that, when I came, that contract ended, the project ended, and then I came back at it while I was still continued to look for contract work, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, I'll just pick up music producing and recording again. But there's this lag that happens. You disappear for nine months to a year. It's going to take you six months to however long to kind of put yourself back on the scene. Mm -hmm. So what I would have done, I would have been more proactive about, you know, the funny thing is when I was doing that gig, I was getting a lot of cold calls and I passed them off, you know, to whoever I could, you know, mainly because, uh, Pass them off where I could. I was like, well, I'll pass them off to whoever I can. It'll come around. It's karma. You know, I've got enough on my plate right now. But I, I honestly should have probably taken some of it and worked extra hours just to kind of stay in. All right. I hope you're enjoying the interview here with uh, Mr. Ben Bernstein on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm sitting here staring at my screen because our friends at Universal Audio once again have a great deal going on. Looks like uh, buy a UAD2 Octo Accelerator and get... API Studer and Manly plugins free. I think that's a, a really good deal. Um, basically, uh, if you purchase and you register any new UAD2 Octo PCIe card or UAD2 satellite Thunderbolt Octo unit, I'm reading this, that's why it sounds so robotic, um, from an authorized UA retailer between January 1st and March 31st, so within the next three months of this year, uh, you get the API Vision channel strip. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, the Studer A800 tape recorder, that's also a good one. And 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 the Manly Verimoo compressor, which I'm thrilled, thrilled that they turned that into a plug-in because uh, at a former studio of mine, we used to have the hardware, and I really miss that. That's such a great plug-in, or such a great compressor. And now that it's in plug-in format, I'm even more thrilled about that. So make sure you check that out. That does uh, expire on, what did I say? I said March 31st, 2016. Uh, you don't need any coupons or redemption codes and looks like, yeah, once again, the plugins are automatically added to the account once you register. Uh, yeah, 
And if you already own any of those plugins, no problem. Once again, common sense kicking in for Universal Audio. I love it. I love these guys. You receive a single-use coupon of equal value to the plugins you already own at at product when you do the project re registration. You already own at product registration. There we go. Right. So uh, make sure and check that out. Our friends over at Universal Audio, once again, bringing out the deals. Good stuff to have. Let's get back to our interview with Ben Bernstein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So you made this miscalculation. Yeah. And you disappeared and basically everybody uh, didn't know that, you know, oh, Ben's back. So yeah, I guess it's time. But I mean, you called it disappearing, but I mean, uh, why do you think people view it that way? Because you're just not out there because you're going to the contract job, coming home, hanging out with the family, and you're not actually going out and seeing people. And Well, or even just being active in the studio. Like I probably had at least one or two people who maybe I had worked with and then I kind of like, you know, said, hey, I, I got my plate full. Why don't you go work with this person? And then they kind of get used to that person and then they develop a relationship, you know. I, I think, you know, but I, I think it's kind of like what you put energy into. So like, let's take other people out of, of the equation. I think it's just kind of like, if you want to make records, if you make records, then you'll just develop an experience of making them. And if you keep making them, I just feel like you're just feeding the experience versus mm -hmm. if you stop doing it, well, the, the fire kind of goes out, you know? So then you got to just get back into it for a while before it kind of like starts to draw people to you. Like if you're good, like, you know, if like playing music, well, if I don't take any gigs, right. I'm playing bass or you play drums. I know if I stop saying yes, eventually the phone will stop ringing. Eventually, yeah. eventually someone will call you. So, someone still can't make it or, Hey Ben, you want to do a gig? And you start saying yes again. And you say yes to another one and another one. All of a sudden, it starts to it starts to happen again because I've come and gone from that over the years. And do you feel like the the musicians in in the, those that are in the the record making side of things in yeah. terms of if we're talking about disappearing, you think that they talk and say, "Oh yeah, I, don't, I haven't heard from Ben," or yeah, "I think he's out doing some contract gig, so call this other person." Or do you think that disappearing? I don't know. I don't know if there's a network of talking. I, you know, I think it, it's more, I, I can't put my finger on it. And honestly, I can't say that I, I exactly know what brings a band to your table um, wholeheartedly. I just, I just felt like that if I had kept a foot in or at least a couple toes, yeah. that when I came off of it, I would have had at least some inertia coming back into it. So, you know, fast forward now, I'm more, this is a great situation because I work part-time on a corporate gig, but that leaves me part-time to do studio work. So I've got this like great balance between what's a pretty steady paycheck and doing this artistic, creative producer work and not having to put it aside. You have three kids. I do. You're outnumbered, you and your wife. Extremely. Um, so- how do you, how do you deal with the family, the work-life balance in all of this? It's challenging at times. I mean, one of the blessings of it is that my schedule is fairly flexible. Um, so if, you know, someone, you know, like grandma can't make it one day or she's out of town, I can, I can change what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, we, you know, put it together with just different people and, juggling between you know honestly 
it's funny because I've made a great effort to keep my recording business as nine to five as possible, which is insane and is insane in the Bay Area because most people record at night and on the weekends. Most people are working a corporate job of their own just to pay their rent so they can afford to go record. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do it. I'll go in, you know, my my wife might work a full day, come home, we might have dinner and at six o'clock I head off to, to mission, to mission recorders to do a, an evening session. Yeah. Um, so I miss, you know, I miss some family time. You know, there's weekends when I'm in there. Um, there's times where it's like, oh my God, like I scheduled the session. All of a sudden there's no one to, to pick up the kids, you know, scramble, scramble, scramble. But, you know, you work it out. Yeah. And you don't miss any major, like you don't miss, you know, Halloween or. I have never missed a Halloween. I have never missed a birthday. birthday. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think from a recording standpoint, people probably respect that more than they do in like the live music world. Like if you've got a great gigs paying you a professional salary, it's your kid's birthday and that artist has a major gig, you're not going to be at your kid's birthday. I've heard, I mean, I've heard of people actually... I recorded a gig at SF Jazz. Bela Fleck, his wife went into early labor. He missed his first kid's birth. Couldn't get home anyways. There was no flight. He had the phone on the stage so she could hear it while she was in labor. She gave birth during the second set. And I, I, I walked out of the recording suite and he's sitting in front of a computer on Skype seeing his kid for the first time. I mean, it was an amazing wow. thing, but it's like, wow. it doesn't matter what level you on, you might miss a landmark experience in your life. It's just all how you manage it and how you manage the expectations, I think, of the relationships, you know, that you have with people, you know, with spouses and such. And Totally. So. But, you know, that's, I mean, that's key is having, you know, you know, whoever is in your family or on your team, it's people who understand what you're trying to do and they support you. And it's not always easy. And sometimes it doesn't always seem like you feel supported, but then you can look back and be like, wow, this person actually, you know, sticks it out with me through the, you know, the pitfalls and the peaks and is still there, you know, putting up with my artistic creative you know, lifestyle and career. I mean, that's invaluable because I know there's plenty of people out there. It's like, you know, they don't have the best family relationships. They may or may not have marriages. And to me, it's, I don't know, I guess it's just my background. Like keeping that stuff together is like what keeps me solid. Yeah. You know, as far as speaking of being solid, um, money, uh, how, what's your, your policy your economic policy for yourself with regards to this business in terms of managing, you know, um, the gear lust, well, obviously you have a family, um, your wife works, right. Um, what, like, do you have like a thought to share about how you deal with all of it? Because I know a lot of people can struggle with it. Yeah. Well, like on the gear thing, it's so tempting to get a, um, zero interest credit card for three years and buy $20,000 worth of stuff and get some great mics and a great new interface and, you know, everything else is awesome, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, maybe I'm a little conservative. I've always kind of held back on how much gear I buy. And when I do buy gear, I like think about like 
is that something that's going to last me five years? Like, yeah. you know, my Apollo interface, like when that thing came out, I was like, oh, I got to get one of those. And I, I mean, I didn't think about it long. I was like, that thing's going to last me a long time, yeah. you know? And it's also going to, I've also been also, you know, I had a Digio 3 before that, which I had, I had done the Black Lion mod on and I was very happy with it. But I realized as soon as the Apollo stuff came out and also Pro Tools was going to, you know, they were going to make, you know, Firewire 400 interfaces obsolete by the time Pro Tools 10 or 11 came around. I was like, I got to get rid of this thing. Yeah. I, I sold it for the price of the mod. I mean, it's, as far as what I paid for the O3, I didn't get anything for that. I got it because of, you know, the Black Lion Electronics. I got, I got out of it and I bought that. So I've always tried to parlay things forward. My computer, my, you know, my, my G5, I knew it was getting outdated. I switched to a laptop. I got a quad laptop when those came out. And I just, you know, my monitors, I had Genelex and I wanted these Focals. I sold those, got some money out of it. And, I, you know, I bought these off, off a friend who's in the audio business. So I've always tried to kind of like think of it like, you know, take my depreciation, upgrade, get better stuff, but not like be sitting on a pile of stuff I don't use, you know, besides yeah. mics. Mics are the one thing it's like you could collect mics from here till tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, to me, microphones are like I never feel weird about getting a microphone. Yeah. Just or, because they, they're, I can always use a mic. I can always use a mic. You know, the thing is, though, I realized this too, kind of on the same thing is like, you don't need a lot of gear. You really don't even need a studio where you can record a band. We are blessed in the Bay Area for 250 300 a day. If you've got a relationship with an owner, you can go into most studios, do what you need to do and go home. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's a bonus, though, to have your own space, I got to say. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have this space. Uh, you can come out here and work. The kids know where you're at. You know, you can right. stop what you're doing, take a break, go in, make some food, go out here and see the chickens. That's right. <laughs> He's we, got chickens. You got to see the chickens. We have chickens at the petting zoo. That's right. That's right. Because it is a petting it zoo. It is a so. petting zoo. We don't have a goat, though. I want a goat. Yeah, you got to get a goat. Yeah. Get on that. It's But the, the gear thing is interesting in terms of the demand for it. Like I always ask, I'm starting to ask myself now, or as before I never asked myself these questions, I always operated off of, you know, when I was younger, I would just, oh, I really want that. I should get that. Never thinking, oh, does this have resale value later on down the line? Do I even need this? Right. So now being older, and getting closer to 50 as time goes by, uh, I'm starting to really, you know, truly evaluate everything very closely. And if I can, you know, sometimes I'll buy stuff used. Like my, my, new, my new used laptop, I wasn't, I'm just not going to buy a new computer. I refuse to. Right. <clears throat> you know, in audio, we'd, most of the time we're dealing in Apple computers. And, you know, with all due respect to Apple, their stuff is ridiculously expensive. If you buy it new. If you buy it new. And the minute you buy it new, the value of it drops. So, you know, I'm happy I spent 700 bucks on a laptop that's going to probably be with me based on the age of my tower that I have at home uh, that's from 2006. This 2012 laptop I have, I'm probably going to have it for a while. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's funny, you know, my friend Dave Tweedy, I believe is still running like a G4 with a, with a mix plus system. Like as of a year ago, he was still running it. And the only reason he was going to buy an iMac with a Pro Tools 10 is because he had to work on a film and he needed to be able to have the video. But I mean, if you know how to keep the engine running, you can buy something that's two, three years old, slap a new, you know, solid straight drive in it, upgrade the RAM, like make sure you have the right OS. You can make those things go indefinitely. That's exactly what I ended up doing. Which is one of the things going back to too, like the whole like thing, oh, you got to get the new version of X software. Mm. Well, no, I don't. I got to this point. It works with the gear I have. And as long as I don't make the stupid mistake of upgrading to some free OS that I don't need, I can still use version X with gear X. And it sounds good. You're not getting lured into, um, you know, you know, kind of the uh the cult of upgrading <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so you know you can get especially now i mean you can get to a pretty sweet spot where everything works and it's like you kind of just you have to turn off the voodoo marketing i mean i get you do too you know i get emails um from companies i love who sell gear daily hey take this percent off this percent off and it's really tempting to be like yeah i'm gonna buy that board i don't need a board but i want one I really want one. I know you start to look at it and it's like you and I both work in mostly in computers and in the box, I would say, right? Right? Uh, you do? I have to be honest with you. And this is not for a lack of want. I've never mixed a record out of the box, I think. And I could. I, okay. have, I have access to a studio with a need, but it's just like at the end of the day, it comes down to time for me. And I'm just like, the client and the clients are like, that's great. I love the way it sounds. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. Well, I think, and that, and that may be partly a generational thing too, just at the time that you came in and, right. and really got up to speed. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'll look at, I'll see an ad for, a, you know, a console or from whether it's, you know, Rupert Neve or API. And I'm like, oh man, that really looks nice. But then my common sense kicks in and I'm like, that looks nice, but really, yeah. What do I really need that? No, I don't. Right. I mean, I think it's one of those things. I mean, there is, I think if you are going to build even a small facility, there is this thing when, when, you know, bands walk in, like even if you have like an eight channel board in there, there's a certain thing to it and there is a value to it. But like for a, for a home studio from a working class audio point of view, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, but then I go back to too, like, so I'm going to invest 50 grand in that or, I could go support some of these people who've taken a risk, built a studio, and scratch their backs. They scratch my back. They make it available. They, they, you know, they give me a good rate. This helps them stay in business. That's a good point. I mean, yeah. just realizing that you are in a position where you don't need all that stuff, but if you do need that stuff in a, in a, for, to make a record, to help out locally, the studios, like you say, that have taken a risk. I think that that that's got a lot of, I don't know, that's got a lot of kismet in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, because if you don't go there and if you just uh, bring everything into your own world and operate like an island all the time, eventually those studios go out of business because everybody right. starts to think like that. Yeah, in a way. And I think in a sense, I mean, that that could be partially what's happened. I mean, computers are great. Computers brought down the traditional studio system, um, which 
was in financial problems a lot of these places because they actually did keep upgrading their boards. I mean, you did the uh, you did the podcast with John Kunaberti, and he tells the story of Dave Matthew wants that SSL at the plant. They bought it. Dave Matthews used it once and bought his own, and that really saddled the studio. They couldn't charge twenty five hundred, three thousand a day for one room anymore, and it's it's sad. Um, but you know, some people people went into their caves. Um, artists go into their caves. They've got GarageBand. They've got Logic, and it's like maybe they'll come out to use a room or to mix. But you know, to me, it's like if if uh, you know if we can all kind of bring back the, that community part of it. Like, well, yeah, sure, I could just work in my own bubble. But if I just kind of like get what I need to do in my own space, and then when I need an actual room, a room is one thing you're not going to get. I mean, unless you have rent or buy a space or have a house with like a room where you want to record drums or an eight piece, whatever. That's the first reason you're probably going to go somewhere. I need a room for the day. I just need to put all these people in here and, yeah. get, a, and get a vibe, you know? Now, obviously you and I operate with the mindset of the expensive things here in the Bay area. Right. But you know, you could be in some very small town where the economy is not so influenced by the tech industry, which our economy here is very influenced by the tech industry. It's affected the rents, the cost of housing, everything. Um, so if you're in a small town that, I don't know, let's pick a town. Sioux City, Iowa, my hometown. Okay, <laughs> sure. You probably could make it work by buying a building or renting a, a space and probably end up being in there for a long time without an outrageous situation happening like it does in the Bay Area where it's like you get a space and then the next thing you know, Twitter moves in. Sure. And boom, there goes the neighborhood. Now right. everybody's changing their mindset about how things, you know, you know, construction and uh, parking lots are now being turned into high-rise condos and the whole dynamic changes. You know, that's interesting too, because I think about that. I mean, I love it here, but I'm all, I, you know, I grew up in a small town. You know, sometimes I'm like, maybe I'll move back there and buy a house for like $100,000 and have like this rad, you know, studio in the garage and whatever, but there's no market there. So, but, you know, I do notice a lot of, um, I see a lot of, um, you know, liner notes of bands I respect and be like, first aid kit recorded in Omaha? Like, what they're from like Sweden and I'm like well what's that all about but maybe they were on the road or maybe they knew of someone who had done just that like had for no money virtually built an amazing space where they could go and get the sound they want and work with someone that they love mm. so it doesn't matter that it's in the middle of nowhere it's a, a place yeah you know but you know you you see bands bands will come through here and they'll They'll call someone up and rent, you know, all, or, you know, find someone who's got all the, you know, portable rig and they'll build a studio in a house in Bolinas and shack up for a month and be inspired. You know, I think you're starting to see things trend that, that way, at least for, you know, tracking, they may overdub somewhere else, but people, you know, I feel like artists want to be in an inspiring space, you know, like, was it Bill Petrell had that place up in Mendocino, um, old school or whatever. And. Yeah, it's yeah. gone now because someone sold the the land. But it's like people would just go up there because they could be on the coast, you know, for three days or whatever, and just be in a space together and like, you know, drink their coffee and it's foggy and like, hey, I wrote this song and let's throw it down, you know. 
Yet if you have an isolated space where you're not, where you don't have neighbors too close by, I mean, mm-hmm. you really could go on Airbnb or VRBO and be like, hey, let's, for a hundred bucks a day, 150 bucks a day, we could rent this place, bring a portable rig in and set up in a house. And mm-hmm. those, those are always possibilities, but yeah, it's, there, there are also the, you don't necessarily need a ginormous room. I was, I was going back and I was, I don't, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I went back to listen to a record that I did at the old space in Emeryville, right? which as we both know, was a, a small space. And uh, it was this record by uh, an artist named Alexis Hart. So, uh, the album is called Sunlight Loping. And I listened back to it on headphones and I was like, wow, kind of wish I had that space back because as small of a room as that was, the drums sounded enormous on the record. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that you don't necessarily need to, if you are going to get involved in a building, it doesn't always have to be huge. And maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, you've got a lot of space here. You could expand this space out. Totally. But you wouldn't have to expand it to be like a warehouse. You don't need a warehouse to record drums in. No, you don't. Or a castle for that matter. Or a castle. I, think I it's would like, love a castle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, could be, it could be small, but if it has a vibe. Vibe is the most important thing. So, like, it doesn't have to be, like, a huge space. I mean, it could be, you know, like at 61st Street in Emeryville, we had a smaller room. But the cool thing was is that we had, we had a room where you could get a vibe with the drums. We had a vocal booth, which was also a hallway, and we had a control room. And then we had some other spaces. So it's like, I could bring in a five, six piece bluegrass band, put the main guys in the big room with all the bleed, but that's okay. And and then, you know, put the banjo in the booth because it's gonna bleed into everything. Yeah. And then, you know, put the vocalist who's doing scratch down, down in, the, in the entryway. And make it work. I mean, that place was amazing for that. And you know, the rent, yeah. uh, at least at the time when, but before you were there, yeah. And I was there with uh, Lisa Richmond and Josh Roberts. The rent was totally manageable. And I've said it before on the show: is that sometimes I, I, I wish that I had stayed mm-hmm. small and had the business sense to do that, but I didn't. And I, you know, I felt like I had to go big. Lessons learned, Lessons but you learned. know, it's real tempting when someone's like, do you want to take over a room that Bill Putnam built, which is amazing, which, you know, everyone's going to record it and you're, you're probably like, yes, that's going to be awesome. But you know, you got to try things and, you know, and sometimes we fail and you got to fail to learn. Know, yeah, you totally. Really I mean that, that unfortunately that's gone now. That room is probably someone's condo now, but I don't even know. You no, know, even know. Yeah. But yeah, no, there was a certain allure to that space. I mean, I, I interned over there, you know, for a while when it was one of the incarnations of Coast and you had the studio and, you know, I used Winger's room sometimes for overdubs. It just, that building just kind of had a cool vibe to it, you know? It so did. I could see how it'd be real tempting to be like, yeah, I want to make records in this room. But then you get in there and it's like, you know, rates are shrinking around you and you realize that some of the busiest studio or charging 250 to 350 a day without an engineer it's like you you got to match it or you're you're just not going to get work so okay so with all this now all this knowledge of you know what not to do sure and and where we're both at now like what if you had advice to give to somebody that you were sitting here you know mentoring what would you say like in terms of business 
recording. It's like, oh, you want to be a recording engineer? You want to do this? Yeah. Okay, here's a few tidbits of information. What What would you say? Well, someone came to me, you know, and was like, I want to be, you know, sometimes I get emails from friends or just random people like, hey, like, what do you, you know, my kid wants to become a recording engineer. What do you think of this school and that school? And I say, first, get that kid a mic and a interface and a computer and tell him to find a band or a buddy or get a guitar and start recording stuff. Don't, don't wait to go to a school or get an internship, just start doing it. You don't go to film school to learn how to make films. You go to film school because you've been making films on whatever device you have and you want to learn the art of filmmaking and the business of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But if you're not already a filmmaker or a music producer or recording engineer on the inside, that school will do nothing for you. You might get a job, you know, doing, uh, you know, AV gigs or something because you learn how to set up gear. But if, if that's not where you want to end up and that's not your passion, like have the passion first. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So say you do that and say you'd go to a school or don't. I mean, the first thing I would do would be like, if you're young in your twenties and go find someone who's going to let you just be there. They're out there. I mean, you can, you could probably call up some of these studios around here still and be like, I just want in. I, I don't need anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know some of the, you know, I know some of them require you be at, uh, you know, a school and be getting college credit because there's laws about that and stuff. And right. these are higher profile situations, but there's places to be like, dude, I just want to like, I'll be there every day making coffee and you teach me stuff and let me use the room. I mean, you could probably make that happen. I wouldn't come to the Bay area to get started. Yeah. I honestly, if I was in my mid twenties, I'd probably move to Nashville. I also, I would totally move to Nashville. Let's go right now. Let's go. I got the minivan. The kids won't miss us for a couple right. hours. That's right. Right. It'll only take two hours. Yeah. It'll only, right. Well, no, before they, but we'll be in Nevada. Oh, before, oh, yeah, right, before right, they miss us, right. but we'll be gone. No, yeah. but seriously, I mean, I also have an, uh, I have an affinity for the kind of music's coming out of Nashville. And I don't just mean the country and the bluegrass. I mean, Jack White is there, you know, but go to New York, go to Nashville, go to LA, go to somewhere where there's an industry, go to somewhere where you can knock on a door, go to somewhere where you might be sitting in a room at midnight and -and so-and-so walks in and all of a sudden you're recording vocals for like fill in the blank and you're gaga and like, wow, that was cool. I just had a real world experience. Plus the cost, cost of living is, is, you know, a lot better there, I, I assume, than it is in the Bay Area for Nashville. And- I think Nashville, you could still probably buy a decent house for a few hundred thousand dollars, on the, you know. Or go to Portland, go to Austin, man. Go somewhere where there's just tons of musicians who are making a living in coffee shops and playing gigs, but they don't, they don't have some, like, situation where they really can't go for it. You know what I mean? It's, hard, it, it's really challenging for people to be able to go for it here, mm-hmm. you know. I, I can't name a, a lot of bands that are like, you know, top tier that are from the Bay Area right now. Half of them moved to L.A. You know, Counting Crows were from here. Train was from here. I mean, Green Day is from here, but good luck getting on that gig. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, it, I'm just saying, like, if, if that would be my advice, go somewhere big. You know, get as much experience and make a name for yourself so that if you do come somewhere that's awesome, beautiful, like the Bay Area, like, you know, maybe some people are going to follow you or seek you out. Mm-hmm. Or if you go build that farmhouse studio in Iowa or Vermont, people are going to seek you out. So to conclude, what's, what's kind of like, where do you see yourself in the next, I don't know, 
five, 10 years. Yeah. Like, what are you going to, what's your plan, man? My plan is to keep doing this and to just keep getting better at what I'm doing. And, you know, my, my hope and dream is that the, you know, the, the artists will come and, and I'll have, I'll have some kind of reputation and still be doing it, you know? And, you know, I, I I've done a lot of other things. I'll continue to do other things to, to feed that experience, mm-hmm. but I'd like to just be doing this, you know, all the time, all the time, every day with the people I want to be with the music I care about. Mm-hmm. And, and are you, you know, are you okay with doing, continuing to do corporate audio if that's where the, the money comes from? Yeah. I mean, corporate audio is fine. I mean, if it allows you to follow your passion and, you know, keep music, um, you know, part of the equation, I think it's great. I mean, I, I end up enjoying the things that I do. And like, it kind of comes down to like we were talking about, comes down to people. Like if you're on a team of three, four or five people or however many, but you like the people and, you know, they're not jerks and you're, you're being respected and you're helping each other out. There's some, there's just something kind of cool about that. And that translates into like, if we're in the studio making a record, like I don't want to work with a, a band that's a bunch of jerks. I don't care how much they're paying me, but if if one person comes in or a trio or five piece band and everyone's psyched to be there, you know, getting along, making music happen, then then it's awesome. Yeah. Interesting. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you uh hanging out with me here on New Year's Eve. My pleasure. And uh being on the show. Um next time uh we can when, next time when uh, we go out for beers, we can we can come. I'll come to your neighborhood. Ye oldie hut. <laughs> ye oldie yes, hut. Yes, <laughs> ye oldie hut. Right on. Right on. Thanks for stopping by the petting zoo, Matt. Okay, thanks. All right, there it is. Ben Bernstein on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It was great to go out to Ben's place and over at his house next to the Bart Tracks Petting Zoo Studio uh, and have a good chat with him. Always good to see him. Uh, coffee. Let's have a sip. Mmm. Cheers to 2016. Cheers to all of you. Um, and before we go, want to mention a couple things. Uh, our friends over at Audio Technica, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of their products. As 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 you know, I use their headphones, and uh, hear the BP40, my microphone that I use, and use a lot of their other products as well. So, in terms of New Year's resolutions, uh, if you did miss out on the deal where you get a free pair of M50 headphones. If you buy a 40 series mic, that was last year's promo that just came to an end a few days ago. Um, You know, I do encourage you to check out their headphones. If you're looking for headphones for, you know, just a single pair or, excuse me, multiple pairs for your studio or your setup, I definitely recommend them. Um, My personal favorites that I'm using here on the show are the uh, ATH M40Xs. Um, The difference is when you see that X, uh, that new... uh, notation there in the uh, in the model number in any of those that seems to as i've seen out in the field that seems to denote that the uh headphone cord is detachable so i can pull this out and here on my left hand side and now i can't get better can't get that okay there we go got that back in. <laughs> i was just trying to do that on my head uh anyways you can remove the cord uh it comes with a straight cord or a coily cord or actually it comes with both so if you uh, are interested in some headphones, I definitely encourage you to check out the Audio-Technica headphone line. Uh, find the price, find the model that works for you. My personal favorites are the uh, the 40s. The 50s are great too. 
Uh, but there's a whole host of them out there. So that that's that. A um, couple other things. I'm going to be uh, at the NAM show. Uh, that is at the end of January, January 21st, I believe. Here, let's go on over to their website right now, NAM 2016. Oh, yeah, here we go. 2016 NAM show. This is going to be in Anaheim, California, of course, and uh, January 21st through the 24th. There we go. Um, come on by, and uh, I'm going to be over at the Focal booth on Thursday. Uh, that is going to be probably the time is shifting a bit. Last time I mentioned on the show, it's going to be around five o'clock, but I think at this point we're looking at around two or three. I will firm up the time, I will put that on the website. Um, I'll just be hanging out there for a while too. Be roaming around to, to different booths, of course. So, uh, but that is one place where we're going to do a show. I'm going to interview somebody from the show or, or interview somebody on the show, I should say. And I encourage you to come on by. That's going to be on Thursday uh, in the later afternoon there. So just check back at the website and uh, keep your ears open on the show. And then I'll be roaming around uh, reporting back on some of the things I see at the show. I think that... Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, things to check out. New gear, uh, people, of course. That's obviously one of the most important parts of this this business. So, yeah, uh, be at the Focal booth at NAM 2016 at the end of the month. So there. Happy New Year to all of you. We're out of time, so let's just uh, give uh, credit where credit is due. Music, of course, is provided by Cliff Truesdale. Our voiceover, that's Chuck Smith. And, of course, our social media and uh, audio support on the back end comes from Mr. Cole Williams. Want to thank, of course, our sponsors, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. Look forward to the next show and look forward to meeting many of you at NAM. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.